Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Now, previously in this series, I discussed the poetry of Elizabeth Barrett Browning and pointed out that in her day, she was a more celebrated poet than I think what has now become her more famous husband, Robert Browning. However, don't get me wrong, as Chrissy Hind once said, I love Robert Browning and think he is brilliant and therefore that's who I want to talk about today. One other thing that they've got in common apart from their love for each other which I spoke of on the Elizabeth Barrett Browning podcast is that they both decided they wanted to be poets when they were small children. Do kids still do that? I find that Hard to imagine. Anyway, Robert Browning was born in 1812 and died in Venice in 1889. And I personally discovered him at school when we were encouraged to read The Pied Piper of Hamelin, which was a uh, Robert Browning poem particularly designed for children, although it is certainly dark in parts But it's one of those poems that feels so good on the lips, the rhyming and the rhythm of it. It's just a joy to read. It's not the poem I want to focus on today because I think to do Robert Browning and not do a dramatic monologue would be just crazy. But I just want to give you a bit of The Pied Piper of Hamelin because it just sounds so lively and exciting and as I say the rhyme is sparkling like a firework display so this is stanza two of that poem rats but bear in mind that Hamelin uh, by the way that the uh, the town of Hamelin was overrun with rats so this is Browning's description of what that was like Rats! They fought the dogs and killed the cats and bit the babies in the cradles and ate the cheese out of the vats and licked the soup from the cook's own ladles, split open the kegs of salted sprats, made nests inside men's Sunday hats and even spoiled the women's chats by drowning their speaking with shrieking and squeaking in fifty different sharps and flats. Oh, man, it's like a workout. It's uh, exhilarating to read. The poem I want to focus on, however, is My Last Duchess. And if you know any Browning, you probably know that one. It's, as I say, a dramatic monologue. In other words, it is one speaker and we have to do sort of detective work with a Robert Browning dramatic monologue to find out what's going on. We drop down in the middle, as Horace recommended in his Ars Poetica all those years ago. Don't start with the egg. Get further on in the story, drop them in the middle and let them work out what is happening. And that's what Browning so often does with his dramatic monologues, and he certainly does it with my last Duchess. So the poem begins. It, there's a little note 
from Browning that just says Ferrara. And I think that is to encourage us to think that this poem is based on Alfonso, Duke of Ferrara, who was around in the uh, late 16th century. Should we then go and look up Alfonso and find out about his life? Well, you can do that later if you like. I am not keen on that approach. If you listen to the Elizabeth Barrett Browning podcast, you'll know that I think based on a true story is often an abuse of the word based. We'll talk about the facts of the Duke of Ferrara later, perhaps, but I say perhaps because I don't work from a script and my memory isn't what it was, but, you know, let's hope that that happens. But here, I think he's just saying Ferrara so that people will sense that this is set in the Italian Renaissance, just to give you... It's almost like when you get the uh, setting at the beginning of a play, it will say something like the city of Verona, nighttime, or something of that nature. So this poem was published in 1842 in the collection Dramatic Lyrics, and uh, it's a joy to read it aloud. It needs... One could argue that every poem was written to be read aloud. It would be an argument you might not win, but certainly a lot of poetry is... Browning's dramatic monologues were born to be read out loud because they are dramatic monologues. And I'll have to do a bit of acting, perhaps. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Okay, first four lines of My Last Duchess by Robert Browning. That's My Last Duchess painted on the wall looking as if she were alive. I call that piece a wonder now. Fra Pandolf's hands worked busily a day, and there she stands. So, like I say, you're dropped in the middle of this, and you have to be as Lieutenant Colombo to go in and try and work out what on earth is going on. I mean, what an opening line that is. That's my last duchess painted on the wall. Wow, we're off. What can we get from these four lines as far as um, the story is concerned? That's my last duchess. Now, because we don't know the rest of the poem so far, how we deal with the word last is open to speculation. Is this someone declaring that he loved his dead wife so much that she's definitely the last one? That's it. That's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. Or is it someone moving on? That's got one out the way. On to the next one. You know, you hear sometimes men of a certain type talk about their current wife that kind of approach, as in, that's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. So we know that he's a duke, we know that he's a widower, we know that he owns art and, of course, a wall 
I suppose a lot of dukes own a wall. So that's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. We've no idea who he's speaking to at this point. I call that piece a wonder now. And again, that now, what are we to do with that? Does that mean he didn't used to call this piece, this painting, a wonder? What did he used to call it? What's changed his mind? Fra Pandolf's hands worked busily a day, and there she stands. So she was painted by someone called Fra Pandolf, a friar, a uh, man of the church. And that also sets us up in that Italian Renaissance context. So of those first four lines, let's just look again. That's my last duchess painted on the wall. And I don't think he means literally painted on the wall, although he might. I think he means she's painted and hanging on the wall, looking as if she were alive. So it's a brilliant, vibrant painting. I call that piece a wonder now. So something has happened which has changed his view of this painting. Fra Pandolf's hands worked busily a day, so they worked hard and there she stands now what is the form of this poem well it is in couplets heroic couplets you may recall we talked about a lot in the alexander pope podcast and that is it's there again iambic pentameter 10 syllable lines the syllables alternately unstressed and stressed and, of course, rhyming. It is the style used roughly in pantomime. So you could read this as if you were a pantomime character. That's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive, I call. That piece of wonder now for our Pandolf's hands. You get the message, but you wouldn't like it if I read it like that. And also, I think it's possible that Browning chose heroic couplets for this poem because the reason they're called heroic couplets is that they were often used in heroic narrative poetry, a story of a great, usually, of course, a great man doing something marvellous, and they would take the heroic couplet as the correct kind of form for that. So the duke... It feels like the Duke has chosen this because he sees himself as a heroic character. But one thing you will have already noticed is our old friend Enjambment. When a line ends but the sentence does not end. So we continue with the sentence and that sort of undermines the whole heroic couplet's feel. So when you say, that's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive, I call. Well, you just don't stop there. You go, looking as if she were alive, I call that piece of wonder now, for our Pandolf's hands work busily a day and there she stands. So if you read it as if the speaker is a living, breathing character, which I'm sure is what Browning wants, then the rhyme scheme sort of gets embedded 
in the in the monologue you feel it and sometimes it stands out very heavily but if you emphasize it it sounds clumsy staccato and not like someone speaking the next section so he's introduced us to this painting wilt please you sit and look at her i said fra pandolf by design for never read strangers like you that pictured countenance the depth and passion of its earnest glance but to myself they turned since none puts by the curtain i have drawn for you but i and seemed as they would ask me if they durst how such a glance came there so not the first are you to turn and ask thus i've stopped mid-line but um, i think that will help our discussion now there was a lot there and i don't expect you to have got to the end of it still focused listening to a poem read out loud is a bit like those bendy wire things you get where you have to move a loop around them and if you touch the wire it goes and you have to go back to the beginning it's very hard to stay focused on a poem that's being read aloud and which you aren't familiar with for more than four or five lines which is why i tend to give them to you in bite-sized portions i went a bit longer there but it's going to be okay well please you sit and look at her i said but of course it's not i said because it's a monologue so he wouldn't say i said he's saying everything so let's listen to the enjambment and not the line endings will please you sit and look at her i said fra pandolf by design for never read strangers like you that pictured countenance the depth and passion of its earnest glance but to myself they turned since none puts by the curtain i have drawn for you but i and seemed as they would ask me if they durst how such a glance came there so not the first are you to turn and ask thus yes what happened to my bite size sorry i like it so much i just keep going the first thing wilt please you sit and look at her so grab a seat enjoy this painting that i own i said fra pandolf by design so i didn't just drop out fra pandolf's name that was deliberate i said it by design why did he do that well here goes for never read strangers like you that pictured countenance so every stranger i've shown this to they never read they never examined they never interpreted the look on the painting the earnest glance they never looked at that so for never read strangers like you that pictured countenance the depth and passion of its earnest glance so no one's ever looked at that painting and then he says but to myself they turn so they always look at the painting and then they look at him 
And then he puts in, it's our old friend, brackets. And you know I love brackets in a poem. And they have all sorts of meanings. But in this particular one, in brackets it has, since none puts by the curtain, I have drawn for you, but I. It's a stage direction, basically. So you are meant to deliver this, I think, thus. Strangers like you that pictured countenance, the depth and passion of its earnest glance, but to myself they turned. Here come the brackets. Since none puts by the curtain I have drawn for you, but I. And seemed as that it's a sort of an aside, but it's quite a big aside, I think, because he's saying, and this is complex, so I want to get it. I said Fra Pandolf by design. For never read strangers like you that pictured countenance, the depth and passion of its earnest glance. So no strangers like you see that painting and who see her facial expression. It never happens, but to myself they turn. So they always look at him since none puts by the curtain I've drawn for you. But I, those bits in brackets... Often bits in brackets in a poem, they are, they're a sort of a lesser thing. They don't quite get in the poem proper. But in this instance, what's going on is power. Since none puts by the curtain, I have drawn for you, but I. So this painting, which we already know is astonishing, the depth and passion of its earnest glance, it's not readily available to everyone who comes in. No, no, the Duke decides who and when sees this painting. Since none puts by the curtain I have drawn for you, but I. So that's a, an aside, it's a separate bit. So let's just leave that out for a moment. For never read strangers like you that pictured countenance, the depth and passion of its earnest glance, but to myself they turned and seemed as they would ask me if they durst. So they want to ask him something when they see her expression, but they're afraid if they durst. It's another little thing from the Duke. See how powerful I am. I control the curtain and people are frightened to actually ask me questions about this painting. So, and seemed as they would ask me if they durst, how such a glance came there? Where did that look on her face come from? So not the first of you to turn and ask thus. So whoever he's speaking to has given him that same look. I don't think for a second that the person he's speaking to has actually said, where did she get that incredible expression from at the time of being painted? Because as he said, no one's got the guts to be so open about that. So the Duke is saying to the speaker, you're not the first to turn and ask thus. In other words, thus, the way you're asking me is with a look because you're too afraid to say it out loud. So when he says, I mentioned Fra Pandolf by design, it seems there is something in the face of the Countess 
that he wants to disassociate from the painter. I'll explain further. Sometimes when you know a poem, you talk ahead of yourself, and I don't want to do that to you. Let's look at the next bit. Again, it's a bit long, but we're going to pull it apart. So, as I said, so not the first of you to turn and ask thus ends mid-line. So I'll go on now to the end of the line and beyond. So not the first of you to turn and ask thus. Sir, t'was not a husband's presence only called that spot of joy into the duchess's cheek. Perhaps for our Pandolf chance to say, her mantle laps over my lady's wrist too much, or paint must never hope to reproduce the faint half-flush that dies along her throat. Such stuff was courtesy, she thought, and cause enough for calling up that spot of joy. She had her heart, how shall I say, too soon made glad, too easily impressed, she liked what air she looked on, and her looks went everywhere. Okay. Sir, t'was not her husband's presence only called that spot of joy into the duchess's cheek. So this is the expression that she has on the painting, a sort of slight blush of delight. And I think the reason he mentions Fra Pandolf is he's saying to any observer of this poem, it was a friar, it was a religious man that painted my last duchess. So don't, when you see the look on her face, think there was anything going on between the painter and my wife. That's what he seems to be saying. But... He does say, Sir, was not her husband's presence only called that spot of joy into the Duchess's cheek. What did seem to have called that spot of joy is just the general creeping around aristocracy that Fra Pandolf seems to be doing. Her mantle laps over my lady's wrist too much, so your cloak is just covering your beautiful wrist or paint must never hope to reproduce the faint half flush that dies along her throat so obviously i'm a marvelous painter but something so perfect about your skin about that blush that i'll never be able to capture such stuff was courtesy she thought and cause enough for calling up that spot of joy so she was so delighted by such banter that she blushed with sheer pleasure and then this slight turn she had a heart how shall i say too soon made glad too easily impressed she liked what air she looked on and her looks went everywhere so the duchess was easily pleased this look didn't come from her husband's presence only, which he seems to think is where such a look should emanate from, came from all sorts of things. 
the friar flattering her, whatever. Too easily impressed, she liked whatever she looked on, and her looks went everywhere. And then I think, oh my goodness, did she have an affair. Her looks went everywhere. Well, we'll read on. Next chunk. Sir, twas all one. My favour at her breast, the dropping of the daylight in the west, the bough of cherries some officious fool broke in the orchard for her, the white mule she rode with round the terrace, all and each would draw from her alike the approving speech, or blush at least. She thanked men, good, but thanked somehow, I know not how, as if she ranked my gift of a nine hundred years old name with anybody's gift. And steadily, although this poem is called My Last Duchess, so one imagines will be telling us about the Duchess, as the Duke gives his interpretation of his dead wife, we get more and more about him. None puts by the curtain I have drawn for you, but I. People would ask me if they durst. I am a man of power. Sir, t'was not her husband's presence only called that spot. Can you believe it? It should just be me who makes her look like that. But it was all sorts of nonsense. The white mule, somebody giving her some cherries in the orchard. The dropping of the daylight in the west. All these things she seems to see as equal to my favour at her breast. The fact that I deign to be at her side. As if she ranked my gift of a 900 years old name with anybody's gift. And it's all coming out now, isn't it? He hates the fact that she was so full of life, such an enthusiast, that he was just another one of her pleasures. That is what winds him up. All and each would draw from her alike the approving speech or blush at least. She thanked men good, but thanked somehow, I know not how, as if she ranked my gift of a 900 years old name with anybody's gift. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Right, next bit. We're getting the measure of this guy. Who'd stoop to blame this sort of trifling? Even had you skill in speech, which I have not, to make your will quite clear to such an one and say just this or that in you disgust me. Here you miss or there exceed the mark. And if she let herself be lessened so, not plainly set her wits to yours, forsooth and made excuse, e'en then would be some stooping, and I choose never to stoop. I'm stopping midline again because there is so much enjambment in this and I'm not always emphasising the rhymes, but I hope you can feel them amongst the realness 
of this monologue. So, who'd stoop to blame this sort of trifling? It would be beneath the Duke to actually pull her up on this behaviour. Even had you skill in speech, which I have not to make your will quite clear to such an one. Now, which I have not is again in brackets, again a bit of an aside. Even had you skill in speech, which I have not to make your will quite clear to such an one. The, the terminology then would be an one instead of a one, such a one, such an one. Grammatically, it makes sense because one begins with a vowel, but let's not go there. Who'd stoop to blame this sort of trifling, even had you skill in speech, which I have not? Now, one might read that as humility in another, but this doesn't sound like a guy who's big on humility. This seems to be a guy who thinks that skill in speech is a bit beneath him. He doesn't need skill in speech. He's the big, powerful duke, and people do what he wants them to do. In the context of a poem, that's an even darker statement. Even had you skill in speech, which I have not. So dismissive of any clever use of language in the midst of this fabulous poem. Robert Walpole, the uh, 18th century prime minister, something of a bad guy in the poetry of Alexander Pope. I remember reading when he said he was taught the classics at school, so he was reading Homer and Virgil, and he said he felt that he was demeaning himself to be involved in that kind of learning. He wanted practical real stuff I think he saw it as quite feminine and the Duke seems to have that kind of opinion what sort of people have skill in speech trivial weak people not people like me even though of course the monologue is very articulate beautifully balanced and so it sounds a bit disingenuous because Browning has made the Duke a fabulous speaker. Even a Duke's killing speech, which I have not to make your will quite clear to such an one, and say, just this or that in you disgusts me. Here you miss or there exceed the mark. And if she let herself be lessened so, nor plainly set her wits to yours, forsooth, and made excuse... And then would be some stooping, and I choose never to stoop. So even if I told her what it is that disgusts me, and that feels like such a big word at this stage, this woman, she just like the dropping of the daylight in the West, you know, that natural beauty. She just like some officious fool, some courtier, giving her a bow of cherries, just breaking that off a tree in the orchard and giving it as a gift. A white mule that she rode around, she just liked those simple things. But her behaviour disgusts the Duke. 
here you miss or there exceed the mark. So that's what he could have said to her. Tell her exactly what she's doing wrong and how. And if she let herself be lessened so, so if she took that on the chin, nor plainly set her wits to yours, so if she didn't argue, she accepted it forsooth, um, in truth, and made excuse, so if she said, sorry, I, you know, I've been a fool, it's for this reason and that reason, but it won't happen again. Even if she'd done all that and they talked it through and solved the problem by conversation, Ian then would be some stooping. So even then I would have had to have stooped a bit just to mention it. And I choose never to stoop. Of course you don't, because you're the arrogant duke who sounds like he doesn't know what a beautiful person he is sharing his life with. Okay. Oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, whene'er I passed her. But who passed without much the same smile? This grew, I gave commands, then all smiles stopped together. There she stands, as if alive. Again, I'm stopping midline because Browning is then jamming me into it. So... Oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, whene'er I passed her. So don't get me wrong, she smiled whenever she saw me. That beautiful, loving smile, can you imagine it? But of course, the problem with the Duke is this, but who passed without much the same smile? She liked everybody, for goodness sake, instead of just focusing on her husband. This grew, so it got worse. And now listen to how this goes. This grew. I gave commands. Then all smiles stopped together. There she stands, as if alive. So, oh sir, she smiled no doubt whene'er I passed her, but who passed without much the same smile? That's the same gripe he had earlier. Everyone and everything gets her glowing, smiley treatment. But this section, this grew. I gave commands, then all smiles stopped together. There she stands, as if alive. Now, many interpret this section as the Duke saying, basically, I had her killed. This grew, so things got worse. I gave commands, so I told people to do the deed. Then all smiles stopped together. Her smile stopped because she was dead. There she stands as if alive. And that as if alive obviously reminds us that she isn't alive. And it reminds us right at the point that he said, I gave commands and all smiles stopped together. Now, it's complicated this bit because... In a way, you want to believe that this horrible bloke is someone who would command a death, but would he tell the person he's speaking to? Well, we don't know who that is. It's quite a big thing to give away, though. This grew, I gave commands, then all smiles stopped together. Now, those commands could have been any kind of restricting, restraining, confined to her room, 
made to be a recluse within the uh, ancestral hall and then all smiles would have stopped together and then maybe she just died anyway. We don't know, but there's something horrible gone on and even if he didn't give commands to have her killed, if he closed her down, then in a way he is responsible for her death. It's a bit like, you know that people used to say that thing that if you have a beautiful bird sitting on your hand, I don't know what that bird might be, but let's say chaffinch, and it sits there, and if you keep your hand open, it will probably sit there and sing for a long time and you'll get great joy from it. But if you worry about losing it and you start to grip it tightly, you'll kill the bird and then you'll have nothing. And maybe it's a case of that. There she stands as if alive. Next bit. Wilt, please you rise. We'll meet the company below, then. I repeat, the Count, your master's no munificence, is ample warrant that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed. Though his fair daughter's self, as I avowed, at starting, is my object. Right. Wilt, please you rise. OK, so you've sat and looked at the painting. You've heard my uh, remarks. We'll meet the company below then. So we're going down now, down the stairs to meet the company. I repeat, so this is something that was said off stage, which we haven't heard, which was said before he pointed out his last duchess there on the wall. I repeat, the Count your master's known munificence. Ah, now we're getting some more details. The Count your master. So this is some servant of the count. I mean, it's not going to be a servant servant. It's going to be a right-hand man, an important man, but an important man who works for some count. I repeat, the count your master's known munificence is ample warrant. So your master the count, known for his generosity, is ample warrant that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed. So the fact that your master the count is known for his generosity will mean that no fair demand from me for a dowry for the money I'm going to get for marrying his daughter will be disallowed. I'm going to get that money. Though his fair daughter's self as I avowed at starting, is my object. So, don't get me wrong, it's not the money I'm interested in, it's his fair daughter's self. And Browning does a very clever thing here, because he has the Duke talk about the dowry, about the money, and then he says, though his fair daughter's self, as I avowed at starting, is my object. So when we first started talking, at starting, I immediately said that his fair daughter's self is what I'm interested in, this young woman, not the money, but the way Browning's presented this monologue to us, we didn't get that bit when he was saying that it's all about her, not the money. The order we've got it in 
is the discussion about the dowry which um, he will be asking for and then his fair daughter's self, as I avowed at starting, is my object. So it might have been the first thing he said to this man who works for the Count, but not to us readers. What we are getting is arrogant, powerful man who didn't appreciate this gentle, enthusiastic lover of life to the point that he at least closed her down, if not had her killed. And now he's asking for money and then saying, of course, it's not about the money. It's his daughter I'm madly in love with. And my God, do we fear for this young girl who's about to become his next duchess if this is how he treats them and we could then go back to that uh, first line that's my last duchess painted on the wall looking as if she were alive and we would know then that the way to say that last is well that's my last duchess painted on the wall looking as if she were alive so we're talking about my next duchess but the reader hasn't been allowed to have that bit that's my last one but anyway let's get back to the money i mean the next duchess that's what's happening and it's all so cleverly put together by browning we have steadily deduced what kind of man this is what his beautiful ex-duchess was like and when i say beautiful i mean in and out and yes we are anxious of how the next duchess will fare and also everything that's been said has been said to some assistant of a count who he's trying to get money and the daughter of. So it's all made to make him sound grand and powerful and important. But when he talked about the duchess, it all leaked out, didn't it? Even though this is quite a formal setting of speaking to the right-hand man of the count who you're trying to make your father-in-law, couldn't resist that bit about the wife and what she was like because he wanted the power show of pulling back the curtain, but then he had to clear up what the expression was about and then it just leaked out of him his resentment and rage at her widespread, bountiful appreciation of life and of the simple things. So it goes like this. Though his fair daughter's self, as I avowed at starting, is my object. We're going to the end of the poem now. It's just a few lines. Thanks for staying. Though his fair daughter's self, as I avowed at starting, is my object, nay, we'll go together down, sir. Notice Neptune, though, taming a seahorse, thought a rarity, which Klaus of Innsbruck cast in bronze for me. So, it's again, there's all these big moments when he opens his heart about the Duchess and talks about the deal he's trying to do for the next one. And then there's these casual 
very realistic sections where he says, uh, no, we'll go together down, sir. Oh, notice Neptune, though, taming a seahorse. Thought a rarity, which Klaus of Innsbruck cast in bronze for me. So as they make to go downstairs, um, I assume to uh, do the deal, he points out another work of art, and that poor ex-dotches of his is just another one of his possessions, his artistic collection. I showed you my last Duchess. I probably gave away a bit too much of her backstory. But hey, here's another piece of mine you might like. He could never control this woman in life. But now he has her hidden behind a curtain, maybe the way he hid her away at the end of her life. And he reveals her. He tells people what she was about and what was wrong with her. And she is there as part of his collection. In this instance, another piece of art he gestures towards is Neptune taming a seahorse. Thought a rarity. So that's what people who collect art, who don't really love art, say. It's quite rare, this, you know, it's worth a few quid, which Klaus of Innsbruck cast in bronze for me. So I commissioned this, and you know Klaus of Innsbruck, that's the top end. It's all that horrible, non-artistic snobbery. But it is no accident, is it, that Browning has given this random reference to a piece of art they're passing he has made that piece of art, Neptune taming a seahorse. So the powerful god of the sea, taming, reducing, confining this delicate creature, a seahorse. And surely we are meant to get the analogy of what the Duke did to his last Duchess from that. By the way, uh, Fra Pandolf and Klaus of Innsbruck are made up artists but we know don't they that their names worth dropping one to show that your wife wasn't having an affair with them and one because uh, I got him to make this bronze just for me even though he's a big famous artist okay when we go back to that Ferreira at the beginning of the poem which I promised I would we can look him up Alfonso Duke of Ferreira and Yes, he did have a, a very young wife who died aged 16 and there was a rumour that he had poisoned her. But the truth is most people now think that she died of TB, which kind of kills the poem if you want to make it biographical and that's why I avoid things like saying this is based on a true story it's based on a rumor about a man who killed his young wife and the reasons for killing her I think are all invented by Browning it's exciting I suppose that there is some person who might have been a bit like this duke but it's also very depressing and irrelevant to the poem. I mean, imagine if they exhumed the body of his last duchess and found 
poison or not poison. Does that affect this poem? If you want to make it a biographical piece, it does, and it shouldn't, because this is a brilliant poem. Robert Browning was an utter master of the dramatic monologue. And as we saw in the Elizabeth Barrett Browning podcast, if you listen to that, she too was skilled in this. I always think with Browning that he was a struggling poet and a struggling playwright. And it's as if one day he thought, if I take the best bits of my poetry and the best bits of my drama writing and have a fabulous mashup into a dramatic monologue. Maybe that would work. It did. If you're um, interested in hearing the voice of Robert Browning, you may remember way back. I, know, I probably shouldn't uh, refer to other podcasts because some of you probably come in and listen to one and then go away again. But some of you don't. And when I talked about Tennyson, I uh, discussed a recording where you can hear Tennyson's voice actually reciting his poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, obviously in a very bad quality recording. And, but there is also a Browning one, which I think the quality is actually a bit better on. And uh, you can listen to Browning. He did a poem... Another one of these uh, fabulous, lively, exciting, rhythmic poems called How They Brought the Good News from Ghent to X. The poem's much better than the title. And he starts reciting that on this uh, old recording, which is on the internet. I think it's uh, from 1889. And he starts saying it. I can't, it's all about... Jorrocks and people riding horses. And then he stops and says, I'm terribly sorry, I can't remember me own verses. And it's the way he says me instead of my makes me really love Robert Browning. I can't remember me own verses. And he gets a round of applause just for trying. And actually he died just eight months later. So I guess that's a pretty good excuse for not remembering me own Verses. I think My Last Duchess is really a spectacular example of the dramatic monologue. Go away and read it and, you know, some of the stuff I've said will echo and then your own stuff will echo with it. And I would be surprised if the sort of person who listens to this podcast won't discover its brilliance. I mean, the poet, not the podcast. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week. 